And that's where the other girl comes into the story, which is my friend Laura, who, as I was kind of cutting myself off or losing my connection with almost everyone else in the world, she was the one constant. Many nights of the week, the two of us would just, you know, it's Canton, Ohio, we're teenagers, we have no money, we have nowhere to go, we have nothing to do. So we would just drive out on country roads, find some abandoned place where no one would, would find us, and just hang out. The two of you became really close friends. And at the same time, your life continued to kind of unravel. Mm -hmm. You know, you still had this feeling of being stalked by this mm -hmm. strange ghost, and you were getting more and more depressed. At some point, you began thinking about suicide. Yeah, I had the unfortunate, um, you know, I was supposed to be a college student at the time. And one of the books we read was uh, David Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, which um, contained a couple posthumous essays as well. And one of them was about suicide. There was something, I'm going to mangle this quote, but it was something along the lines of no one ever gave up a life that was worth keeping. He then goes on to say, basically, if you feel your life is not worth living, then that should be your biggest indicator that providence has elected for you not to live it. All you're doing by not killing yourself is delaying the inevitable. Kind of a toxic message to fall on the ears of a depressed teenager. It is. And, it ha it, it, and to me, it became a justification for the way I felt. And what I felt was the, the answer to all of it was just to check out. So I acquired a little glass, a vial, a little a clear plastic thing. And I bought a, a bunch of sleeping pills. And I carried them with me for months. Whenever I got into situations with people where I felt anxious or I didn't know what to do or people were upset with me, you know, I could reach in my coat pocket and I could feel that there and know that I had a, an automatic out whenever I needed it. So it felt a little like a safety blanket in a way? It felt like a choice. I always had a reason not to do it, but I always knew it was there. Do you think you really would have? If left unchecked, I would have, yeah. No one's ever asked me that directly, and, and um, I've never really answered it out loud to myself, but that's the truth. Yeah, I would have. What saved you? Uh, an accident, literally and figuratively. I was up one morning, very upset, and I got in my car and I drove down the driveway, and I just remember like having this moment of just thinking, you know, F it, you know, I'm done. And I just hit the accelerator. The car hit the side of the house and the back steps, and it did almost no damage to the house. Um, it tore the front wheel off the car. According to what I'm told, and I have no memory of this at all, I uh, called my mother at work and said I had an, had an accident and that I was upset and, you know, wanted to die and all these other things. And she took me to the hospital. They asked me a series of questions, which I obviously answered incorrectly. <laughs> and I was put on in observation for 14 days, which ended up being a little longer than that. From the way you tell the story in the book, it sounds like it's, it was kind of your friend Laura who pushed you back into real life. She gave me a reason to live because she never stopped caring about me. And it's not to say that nobody else cared about me, but I think everyone in my life was so frustrated and because they just knew, didn't know what to do. Um, I had kind of woven this web of, of deceit, so no one really even knew how bad I, off I really was. She kind of was the one who kind of never blinked kind of stuck with me, even drove me home from the hospital. So you've pulled your life together, but Laura herself has also become a ghost because mm -hmm. you made it out of those teenage years, but she didn't. Right, yeah. What happened to her? Um, she left. She moved to New York for school, which I, at that time, considered a betrayal. 
I took it very poorly. We had tried on occasion to get together. We'd talk on the phone a little bit. She really didn't tell me much about her life. I knew she worked at a bookstore in New York. I knew she went to college. Then I ran into a friend one night outside of a bar, and we said, oh, let's talk. And she told me that Laura had, um, that Laura had been hit by a car and killed about a month before. What I learned when I wrote this book is actually those years, about two years between when she left and when she died, where, where she kind of went through her own version of what I did. She um, disappeared a couple times. Uh, when she finally left New York, she um, surfaced after a couple weeks in New Orleans, refused to tell anybody why, why, how she'd even gotten there or what she was doing there, and would come home on the condition that no one ever asked her. And no one ever knew. At the beginning, you said, really, your story is about what it's like to be haunted.